to Series 4, Episode 6 of Raw Talent. Today, I am joined by sustainability and raw materials expert, Kavita Das. With a history in raw material sourcing and technology, Kavita combines both industry experience and study to offer an authoritative grasp of the latest innovations, sustainable sourcing and circular economy challenges and solutions faced and on offer within the fashion industry. Her unique selling point is her ability to implement and embed sustainability with a systematic approach so that a business remains agile and in step with its customers. Implementing changing practices is a gradual process that should not impede or disrupt, but instead be a smooth and considered transition. So I'm joined today by Kavita Das. Welcome to Raw Talent, Kavita. How are you? Very well, thank you. Very well. Excellent. We haven't got the weather on our side today, have we? It's pouring with rain outside this morning. Yeah, it's really coming down. So we've known each other for around nearly 10 years. Can you believe that? I know, time flies. (laughs) (laughs) It really does. You grew up in India. Give us a snippet of your background because you have a fascinating background and your journey into the fashion industry after studying history and geography. I was born in Delhi and uh, I grew up uh, in the mountains uh, where my family has a tea garden. And so it was like living in the middle of a forest and uh, grew up with nature, you know, so that's sort of became what, uh, you know, I identify with. My father and mother, they were very much into environment and social uh, upliftment of, you know, the village around. A lot of those people were our workers. And to date, you know, we are very closely associated with families in those villages. So environment and the social aspect in life, it was always really a part of who I became, me and my brother, as we grew up, that really became part of something that we would identify with, I think, in our careers as well. But uh, I, I, in fact, wanted to be a doctor. But I went on instead to do my textile design, which also I love. It's because of my textile design background that, of course, I got into the fashion industry. And alongside it, I studied my graduation in, in history and geography, because, again, that was something which was very uh, connected, you know, to the earth and potential routes for my career. In those days, you couldn't really build your career around your interests, you know, but uh, I was lucky. So with textile, I, I got into the fashion industry. I started off in India and very soon I was the head of the creative department with a leading uh, exporter. So I was exposed to a lot of um, international brands in the U.S., and also some in Europe. I traveled a lot. So it really opened up my eyes, you know, about the fashion industry and also about the issues that fashion lent itself to. So that, that's how it was. And then we moved. I got married. We moved to the UK and I joined Jaeger over here after a while because in the middle I wasn't working because I was a full-time mom. which which I enjoyed. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So the journey of life brought you to London and your career in raw materials kind of resumed with uh, Jaeger and Aquascutum. And it also evolved via Sara Lee Courtauld. You were at Dewhurst. You worked at M&S. And I guess during this time, you began to hone your expertise 
in sustainability. Share with us one or two projects. Yeah, so Marks and Spencers is, of course, a leader, you know, in uh, sustainability, and they really have set the bar quite high for the rest of the industry. And having worked with Sarah Lee, Kotals, and Dewhurst, which were some of their major suppliers supplying into Marks and Spencers, I had the opportunity to start working with uh, sort of mitigating the environmental impact of some of what we do in the fashion industry. And this involved also denim, which is one of the most polluting uh, fabrics, but one of the most beautiful engineered product, you know, that we have invented. So uh, there was a lot of work done also in outerwear, uh, in denim, uh, PFC-free waterproof finishes. That's when it all started, the conversation around waterproof finishes causing this uh, you know, release of PFCs, which are kind of causing. And also, you know, people were talking then about water usage. Water scarcity was being suddenly was sent front. You know, people were aware of it suddenly. Uh, cotton, how much water it uses, those kinds of things suddenly were becoming important and became something that we needed to deal with. And leaders like Marks and Spencer's uh, then had projects on this, and I was involved in these projects from the supplier end. And then later, when I joined them and I started working with them, I led some innovation projects. I was with the menswear uh, team, and I really enjoyed all the innovation and the true uh, sort of interest by by this company to really look for solutions. I had a lot of fun, and I felt finally I was beginning to give something back. Yes, and talking about the projects. And being sort of more specific about those, you worked on um, a PFC-free water repellent finish at Dewhurst for Elsewhere. And you, the denim projects at MS were all about reducing uh, water usage by experimenting with ozone and laser treatments. Where did those experimentations lead? Did those actually manifest into practices that they could adopt and continue? Yes, absolutely, they did do. It was the beginning of people talking about ozone treatments at that point and laser. It wasn't something which was really commercialized. Maybe, you know, Levi's and such brands who were dedicated to them were doing it. But with MNS, it was coming into the mainstream and the impact obviously uh, was going to be huge because they are a big, big brand. It started coming in. So, like things like ozone, you could do it. On not only on denim, but also non-denim. So that realization started coming in and translating into actual product, which started getting sold. It was at that stage an initial state, but I think the PFC free was a big, big push. And then, you know, moving away from conventional cotton was a big, big push. And I think that is a time when uh, the businesses started getting rid of what you call C-chain technologies for waterproof, which is all PFC releasing technologies. And we were able to implement and move Marks and Spencers totally away from those harmful technologies for uh, waterproofing and totally into PFC free. And one of the projects I led was uh, at the menswear end was um, to do this transition without cost impact. And that didn't mean that you were stripping away the profits or stressing the supply chain, but to work with the supply chain and work out the balance of, you know, the product versus the input, because these technologies save water, they save, you know, electricity as well. And 
the chemicals are now scaled up. So the costs have also come down. So these were practical solutions. And I was able to help lead some of these whilst I was in these you know, companies, the suppliers, and also then, especially when I joined Marks and Spencers and worked with them. And then, of course, these would then be rolled across the business, you know. So if there were innovations that menswear did, then uh, also drilled, uh, you know, sort of rolled across the business to make women's wear and things like that. So, yeah, it was really good and it felt rewarding because it was actually commercialized. Absolutely. Yeah. So interesting to to hear sort of where it all started. And then in 2015, before they moved the International Design Centre to Switzerland, you joined Timberland as material specialist in innovation, sustainability, sourcing and commercial viability. What was the mission with Timberland? Timberland has always been a brand, part of the VF group, which has always had sustainability as one of their key uh, performance uh, indicators. And I think it was the first brand where I saw that your performance in delivering the sustainable targets was also part of your performance assessment as you know, in your role. And that was excellent because then it became everybody's target to actually in, include that in each of their roles, whether you were a product developer or you were a fabric uh, a material specialist like I was. We were in a small team, we were four of us, we are still great friends because I think when you have purpose as a common element, it just, it also resonates, you know, with each other and People in Timberland IDC, they moved to Switzerland. I wasn't able to move across because uh, my husband had just moved to Singapore uh, to pursue his career dreams, but my daughter was just going into A-levels, so I couldn't move along with them. But what a company. I would have loved to. That opportunity was there, but I had to pass on it. And I'm glad I did because doing well now, and I'm doing fine as well. It was a company which really pushed for sustainable targets within your role. And uh, that's where I learned a lot more about sustainability, about, uh, you know, whether it was cotton or it was, you know, using recycled materials, recycled polyesters and nylons, and then also how the industry was pushing all of this forward. I was introduced to the textile exchange, which was VF is one of the founding members of, uh, and it's a group which pushes the industry towards solutions and goals to collaborate together. And it's, it's a big power, you know, this big influencer, this collaboration. So I was introduced to a lot of these uh, elements, which strengthened my understanding of how to implement sustainability. Really, really, really important and great that I, I managed to, you know, work with them. To do that and continue this journey. And of course, it then led into in 2017 to you joining ASOS. So it kind of, uh, it set a foundation for you and you went to ASOS and built and launched their responsible sourcing material department, which people won't necessarily know they even have. And it was a role in which you formulated and implemented the entire strategy, leaving a blueprint, which the business works to today. Tell us what your main, what were your main achievements in that role? 
So at uh, ASOS, initially, when I joined them, they, as you said, didn't have a materials department. At that point, it was like a fabric department. So it was very initial, you know. So I started the, the fabric department. And I think the target really was because they already had a sort of blue sky thinking was there. They had amazing leaders in the sustainability and where they knew what they wanted to achieve. But thing was that how do you achieve it? How do you implement those goals? So that big, really important piece was missing. So when I went in there, the thing was to do that gap analysis to understand where we were, which was the real challenge, because where we wanted to get to, there were some really amazing targets, you know, we want to do this. And a lot of those targets were aligned with the rest of the industries, because those were the aspirations of the business, which was actually great. So how do you implement these? And that is where I went in and understood where we were. So the transparency aspect was really important, you know. So if you're going to talk to the world about, uh, you know, you know your supply chain, you, you really need to know your supply chain. And there was the challenge because suppliers are not very, very keen to reveal their resources to you, you know. And even within the business to understand what are your top five, what are your top ten fabrics, what percentage of your total business do they make? And then my belief is always that if you're trying to solve a problem, you have to go after the bigger problem first. And therefore, in this, in the case of materials, that meant go for your, go after your biggest materials, your core materials, you know, what are your buckets of material and then what are the core fabrics within there? And then switch those to their more sustainable alternatives. And that is the blueprint really of how to get there, how to do it, and then to implement it. And of course, we ended up moving like in the first season, we moved about almost 2 million units, you know, of material into sustainable things. And then, you know, we ended up moving about 5 million units of business. And and that was one way of measuring it as well. You see what, what you had and how you're moving it. And then from there, you can glean what impact that has in terms of water savings or carbon uh, footprint, et cetera, et cetera, which, as I said, we had an amazing sustainability department who was sitting there and I was supporting them in, in that as well to get this data. And then they were able to measure that. And we, as a business, were able to report it, you know, and, and become a leader, literally. I think ASOS is inspirational even today. Absolutely. And actually, with those 5 million units, you were able to move those into sustainable, traceable and certified raw materials, which is a really big deal. And and that even included the processes and the packaging. So it was a huge achievement. Yes. And packaging became a very important aspect because every business has to take everything in sort of manageable bite-sized pieces. And, And by the time I left, we had uh, was now called the Responsible Materials Division. It, uh, they had the sustainability and the responsible materials became one, which made sense. And uh, we had an executive who was looking after the sort of waste packaging and packaging as well. And of course, I supported wherever I could in sourcing materials, looking for materials which could be better and uh, trying to bring such resources into the business. So, you know, everybody was doing their bit there. And and I think uh, now a lot of the packaging that ASOS uses is also very responsible. So I wasn't directly uh, solely responsible for that, but that 
was definitely something I was very involved in. I learned a lot, you know, whilst you talk to all the resources, you learn a lot. And that sets you up really to implement these solutions further on in your career as well. Yes, totally. And I found it interesting that you invited Mills to engage with the, is it the SAC HIG index and the MSI tool to use the MSI tool to measure, help measure carbon footprint. What was the reaction of the Mills to engage with the index? How did they feel about that? I think uh, most good mills who really understand sustainability and you know the environmental impacts were very interested, but it did take work. So this was, again, a joint uh, collaboration between uh, the sustainability professionals in the business and myself, who was you know, bringing the raw material aspect of it, to convince these mills. So we, we tried various methods of doing that, communicating with the mills and the suppliers and getting them to join in. A lot of them were already on board. Some of the good mills are sort of leaders, you know, like there are Indian mills like Arvind. They they were very much on board. As a business, we had to train them as to what is SAC, what is it, why is it good for you, you know, because you as a mill will avoid repetition of data. It will all be there for everybody to see. And so to make them see that it made commercial sense as well, because, you know, you're there as a sustainable mill or as a sustainable supplier. So it's worth coming into this sort of pre-competitive world environment, which is now happening where everybody is, is willing to be transparent about their resources, their own supply chains. So it did work. And those that were not willing to engage, uh, unfortunately, would then have to be eliminated from the business. And that happened. We did that with some mills. And, and some suppliers as well. And also we, we, we worked on circular fashion at ASOS, you know, so that was a really interesting project that I contributed to. And we, so obviously the materials, what are the, how do you source the right materials? How does it, how, how are the materials circular? So there were certain principles to it. And uh, we sourced all of these materials and the design departments worked on those designs, those patterns, how to make them, you know, zero waste and things. And ASOS launched just before I left, the first capsule collection for circular uh, design was launched. And I think uh, thereafter, I saw that they had uh, commercially launched it on their website. And I think they've done more after that on that. So the circularity principles, which are also drawn from Ellen MacArthur Foundation. And of course, there was a circularity guide, which again, I had also to edit, you know, whatever I could contribute there. And ASOS created that guide, which was an internal guide. So everybody understands. I think education was a big emphasis, you know, where we created, I personally created some modules for basic understanding of fabrics, you know, for all the people who are buying uh, garments and things. So the in- educating our employees, our, our colleagues, I think that was a really important part of delivering, whether it was circularity or sustainable materials. And everybody worked together. And I, I must say the buying teams, a shout out to them, uh, especially the menswear teams, really, really great individuals. We had sustainability champions in there. So we all worked together. And uh, I was able to provide that leadership to the sustainability champions in terms of the materials. That was really fulfilling. Yes. 
Amazing. So interesting. You also consult on sustainability projects to help businesses of all sizes, including startups on their sustainability and circularity journey. And of course, ASOS has provided a great foundation for that, along with the rest of your experience. And there is special emphasis with what you do on sustainability roadmaps, raw material sourcing, circularity, as we've just been discussing, and product development. Tell us a little bit about your um, consulting work. Yeah, so there are brands who want to become sustainable and they need help, you know, when it comes to complicated world of sustainability certifications, what is the meaning of chain of custody and things like that. Where do they start? Because there's so much data out there now that everybody is aware that it's really, really hard. Again, that implementation piece, which I led at ASOS, that has become I suppose, a specialism for me and a strength where I'm able to help people actually implement their sustainability goals, you know, their blue sky thinking as it were. And I have been able to leverage my understanding of procurement of the supply chain because I started, you know, 20, 25 years ago, right from, uh, you know, designing the fabric, designing the yarns, working with, you know, little mills and even hand bloom and semi-automated mills. So I have an understanding of like a bird's eye view of how it works through the, the industry. And, and I understand what changes would have that domino effect, you know, in the business. So I'm lucky that, you know, I have sort of worked my way through uh, the industry right from the bottom, you know, to where I am today. And that helps me help other brands. Uh, and now with the sustainability part, you know, where I, I think I was really, really helped by the fact that I did this course with Cambridge. It's an amazing course on uh, sustainability leadership in business. And that really, really helped me, you know, and this, I, I did this course between uh, Timberland and ASOS. So it was just before ASOS. So I think, my professors uh, were amazing uh, at Cambridge. And in fact, one of them, Dr. Wayne Wizer, he also asked me then to be an ambassador for the first documentary, you know, length film that he made uh, that was ever made on circularity, on closing the loop. And we organized a lot of screenings worldwide, I think 120 countries. So many screenings were organized to create awareness and educate people about the importance of circularity, you know. And all of that exposure has helped me to leverage that understanding and that experience to help these brands, whether they're luxury online brands or somebody like N. Brown, where I also consulted, to actually do the practical stuff. How do you implement this sustainability? How do you achieve? How do you measure? And how do you report those, those achievements? Because you cannot manage what you cannot measure. That is a cliche now in the industry, but it's really, really important. Yes, absolutely. It's all about being able to measure and knowing how to do that and how to build that capability into your existing team or do you need to resource it? So yes, it poses lots of questions and sometimes challenges for sure. Sustainability is very much the buzzword of fashion at the moment. And I think that's going to continue for a little while because we are still innovating and still creating the blueprint, which is continually evolving. And it's a movement as you very 
well described the journey of in the last 10 years, we can see how it's been evolving. And it feels as though the pandemic and the climate crisis have really pushed the fast forward button button at the moment. What are the important considerations, do you think, for the next three to five years? And how fast can we go in changing things at pace? I think we really need to go as fast as we can because we're already losing the battle. You know, we're already using as much resources as almost two earths could give us. We need to, for one, half what we use. And I think one way of doing that is to not throw away our raw materials just because we've used them once. You know, that which goes into a bin, it ends up in the landfill. And that's so very important. The second thing is what are we putting out there into the environment? So when you hear about the carbon footprint or the greenhouse gases, they're really quite linked to, yes, our pattern of use, but also the source is from fuel-based sources, you know. So there are alternatives. Firstly, there are people who advocate that we need to leave that fuel in, in the ground because that's where the emissions are coming when we process that coming, coming from there. The other thing is, of course, to reuse what we've already taken and not throw it away and reuse it in a way that it can be reused again. I think that is really key. So circularity is the only way forward. And if we can't achieve that, then, I mean, you know, I don't want to be a thing of doom, but we are in trouble on Earth if, if we don't stop. So that is really, really the key thing is there should not be waste because no resource is really waste. This linear way of thinking, the linear way of using things and the, the fact that we couple growth with just the monetary aspect of growth, you know, where nobody is looking at what is the cost, which is the environmental cost. So we need to start measuring that. We need to start putting the money measure to waste. Yes, absolutely. It can't be, we can't be living this life that's all about purchasing transactions, this transactional lifestyle. It's coming at a cost to the planet and it has to change. What exciting innovations are coming along the tracks in circularity and sustainability for fashion? The very key thing that we really need to crack in our journey towards circularity, which is the future, and people are trying to innovate there, is how do you reuse materials so that they can be reused again? And one of the big dilemmas is how do you recover materials which are blended, for example. And I think that will be a real game changer because there is a lot of work going on. There are leaders like H&M and uh, others who are working behind the scenes with laboratories, with technology providers to be able to crack this. It's like the Da Vinci Code. Separate the fibers. Yeah, it's very interesting you mentioned that because um, one of my early podcasts was with... Swedish Stockings, and the founder of the brand Swedish Stockings wanted, she basically identified that tights are one of the most biggest contributors to creating pollution and um, waste that we have. And that's because the um, nylon fibre cannot be separated from the elastane. 
and what do you do with that? And her, she's also one of the um, trailblazers that's working on this solution. And what she started to do as a, an immediate solution is to recycle tights that anybody can send into her from anywhere. People just assume they're going to turn tights back into tights, but you can't actually do that because you can't separate the fibres. So instead, they melt them down and they turn that raw material into other products. So they create a resin that can be used to line um, water tanks or can be used to to build tables. So she's actually got a project called Tights for Tables, which is brilliant. And they build these beautiful tables made out of resin from the tights that they've melted down. So it's definitely something that the industry is very conscious about and wants to find a solution to. Yes, absolutely. And then going a step forward, and that is what happens after you create that second solution is that then also going to end up into the landfill, landfill or is that going to then again be, re, you know, it's possible to recycle that again, at least six to seven to eight times can be reused going forward. So the end of life extension is really, really important. So for example, if you convert certain cellulosic fibers into a type of man-made cellulosic fiber, there are some that cannot be recycled again. So you've recycled it once. So you have extended the life for that material, but only once. But there are certain other uh, types of cellulosics, which are man-made, which you can convert that material to, which you could probably recycle six to seven times. So we have to be conscious, don't we, about the types of materials we're using, how many times we can recycle, and ultimately, can they be returned to the earth in some way that isn't harmful? And the interesting part, uh, Fiona, is that, you know, like now in our uh, first world countries, uh, so-called first world countries or the Western world, we are talking about recycling as if it's something new. You know, I have grown up in a country, I've grown up in India where it's actually a way of life. I remember all the newspapers, even as we were growing up, have always been stacked up, tied together and kept neatly. And somebody comes to your house, weighs it, pays you a little bit of money, and then they make paper bags out of it or or use it for lining things and uh, making uh, covers of books and things like that. This kind of thing has, in many cultures, been a part of their life. And we are trying to teach these countries about recycling when actually the truth is that even today uh, these are the countries where we send all our rubbish to and they are the ones who are making something out of it you know there are a lot of recycled uh, recycled fibers materials that are coming out of countries like India actually trying to remake fibers that can be used in garments again so so there's something that we really need to Uh, acknowledge and try and bring back into our own areas here, like in the UK. Why should we be sending all this waste across to other countries? What about the greenhouse gases that we're causing, the carbon footprint for that? Why can't we help create that industry within the UK and do that recycling of our own waste here? China has now refused to take rubbish from other countries. They're recycling their own waste and they're selling that you know, as solutions, recycled fibers, etc. So we really need to look at 
solutions like that within the UK as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What would you say has been your greatest achievement to date? I think the fact that I've been able to, in the fashion industry, be able to help give something back, I think I feel is a huge uh, plus because I used to feel quite bad about being part of the most polluting, second most polluting industry. And so when I studied my course with Cambridge, I think that was an eye-opener and it changed the way I felt about my career and it changed um, my career path. So I, I think that was really one of those key moments, you know, that you have. Yes, because you're doing something that makes a positive difference and you want to make a positive impact. Yeah, doing something meaningful. Absolutely, absolutely. That was a good, good achievement, I think, uh, that has been. And I hope that I can move forward in this line. I would absolutely like to just be part of an NGO where I can actually, or, or a solution provider, you know, uh, purely, and that's the way I would like my career to go. Yes, no, I can fully understand that because we need, as you said, we haven't got time. We need to just get on and make things happen now, make these changes now. We don't have another 10 years to be um, experimenting or moving at a snail's pace towards something. We actually just need to do. We need to do it. I mean, there are people who are skeptics who feel, oh, this really climate change isn't a thing and all of that. But I would just say that putting pollution out into the world or wasting anything, uh, you know, that wasting our resources is in any case not a way to go. You know, whatever you may believe in, you know, it has to be better to have a cleaner environment. It has to be better not waste resources. So there is no argument against that. So if you're a believer in that, then I think it's good enough uh, to want to make that difference. Absolutely. I think that's a very valid point. What would you say that you have not done yet that you would like to do? Oh, on a personal level, uh, it would be really take time off and travel around the world. Just pick and choose a few countries and travel around there. And if I could combine that with some kind of learning in terms of my uh, sustainability, my interest in in sustainable solutions, maybe go and work with a technology provider or solution provider for a while uh, on those journeys. I would love to be able to do that. Good answer. Yeah, I think. And I think the more you travel around, the more you go to different countries, you have a different view on things and you see the different things that people are doing. It's, It's fascinating, isn't it? I learn all the time. And very often when I'm consulting for people, I'm learning and then providing solutions, you know, because every time there's a new question to be answered, to be investigated. So it's like, yeah, we're all babies in in this area at the moment, you know. We all have a lot to learn. Absolutely. And it brings us to our my closing question, which is this. If you could hire any three people in the world to lend their expertise to your consultancy, who would you choose and why? Oh, now that one. Okay. I think, uh, funnily, one of them would be Richard Branson because he has inspired me once. I mean, that could be a controversial answer, but he he once said that in terms of aspirations, you know, go for the job you want to do and then learn how to do it on the job. 
And that really opened up things for me, uh, even in pursuing my ambitions for sustainable solutions and, you know, working with sustainability. I stopped being afraid of saying, yes, I can do it. And I felt that he would be one person I would really like on my team. I think that's a great answer. He is such an inspiration and such an amazing man. When you actually begin to understand the different things he's done, his determination, um, he's a trailblazer. He is. He is a trailblazer. It's really hard, actually, to think of the other two people. I would actually say my daughter, because she's a young uh, girl, and uh, maybe it's because of the environment she's grown up in, right, from her grandparents to us. Uh, and and it is that generation as well. She is very good with, you know, IT for one. Uh, she is quick to think on her feet and point of view is always from a sustainable angle. She looks at things and I think a lot of their generation does, you know, what is right. You know, that, that moral compass is very much there in that uh, generation. And she's very efficient. She's studying to be a vet. Uh, you know, to 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 help animals. She's wanted to do that. She's been clear-headed about that since she was seven, eight years old. I still sometimes don't know what I want to do, but now I feel I found my thing I want to do. So she would be the other person on my team because I think she keeps me on my toes. Love that. Credit to you. She's a credit to you and she's a reflection of you. So you've raised her beautifully. <laughs> I feel proud to be her mom. You should. And who would be the third person I would want on my team? Ooh, maybe you, Fiona. You ha- I have always spoken of you as, as my mentor, and you know that. Oh. <laughs> so you have been a mentor. I mean, I met you years ago when, you know, helped recruit me for a job. And uh, right from that moment, I think I-, I was very impressed. And I have always said, to people that you are a mentor for me in the industry. So I think you would definitely be on my team. Oh, I'm very flattered. Thank you. So I would love to be on your team. Thank you for that. I am very, very flattered. That's lovely. (laughs) I have enjoyed being, I have enjoyed being on your career journey. I enjoy being on everyone's career journeys with them and watching them grow and seeing how they evolve and keeping in touch with people. And it's been fascinating to watch your career evolve in the way that it has from the days of relatively straightforward um, fabric sourcing and development and technology through to the complexities of the challenges that now face us in sustainability, which has completely revolutionised all the raw material roles. It's been amazing to sort of see how this has unfolded for you. So I would be honoured to be on your team. Thank you. Thank you very much. I mean, you've been there for me. I mean, the ups and downs. So you you know about my journey already, anything I've spoken to you today. So, yeah. It's all just experience. That's always the way to look at everything. Never see it as good or bad, but just experience. And I think someone told me that a long time ago, and I think it's one of the best pieces of, of advice. We do as humans judge things. And if we can let go of judgment and hold on to just letting things be experience, it's super powerful, don't you think? 
Absolutely is. And that is what I draw upon, you know, in my experiences through the various companies that I've spoken to you about. I remember the best parts, you know, because there were some really good parts in each each experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's that's the thing. It's it's learning. It's all just learning. So thank you so much. It's been amazing to have you here today. And no doubt we will we'll do more of these. I hope that the, the people listening enjoy your insights. Thank you for sharing those with us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. I, I always like to share and learn. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much. I hope you have enjoyed the insights shared by Kavita on the sustainability and circularity journey of fashion and some of the initiatives being undertaken by the industry. If you enjoyed this episode, join me next time when I will be speaking with Professor Carolyn Mayer, author of The Psychology of Fashion. And if you are enjoying this series, hit the subscribe button to receive notifications on upcoming episodes where you'll get to hear first-hand insights from across the global fashion and creative industries. Mm-hmm.